Romans 10, verses 14 through 21. God is evangelistic. From the beginning, he's been revealing his salvation to the human race. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them in the Garden of Eden and offered them what Irenaeus in the second century after Jesus called the Proto-Evangel, meaning the first gospel. He was referring, of course, to Genesis 3.15, where we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Commenting on this, William MacDonald said, it predicts the perpetual hostility between Satan and the woman, representing all mankind, and between Satan's seed, his agents, and her seed, the Messiah. The woman's seed would crush the devil's head, a mortal wound spelling utter defeat. This wound was administered at Calvary when the Savior decisively triumphed over the devil. Satan, in turn, would bruise the Messiah's heel. The heel wound here speaks of suffering and physical death, but not of ultimate defeat. So Christ suffered on the cross and even died, but he arose from the dead, victorious over sin, hell, and Satan. The fact that he is called the woman's seed may also contain a suggestion of his virgin birth. Another writer said, These words spoken by God contain the first promise of redemption in the Bible. Everything else in the Bible flows from these words in Genesis 3.15. As the acorn contains the mighty oak, so these words contain the entire plan of salvation. The English preacher Charles Simeon called this verse the sum and summary of the whole Bible. When Charles Wesley wrote the familiar carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he included a verse based on Genesis 3.15. Modern hymnals often omit it. It's unfortunate since it contains such excellent theology. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. When we studied the life of Abraham, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant. Included in that covenant was a promise that through Abraham's seed, all peoples would be blessed. They would be blessed because through Abraham's seed would come the Savior promised by God in that first gospel, in that proto-evangel. Now we saw last time we were in Romans that Jews and Gentiles were getting saved exactly the same way. They were calling on the name of the Lord. The question that arises from that is, how does someone call upon the name of the Lord? The remainder of this chapter, chapter 10, answers that, it addresses that, and of course much more. And so we pick it up in verses 14 and 15. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Uh, first question, who are they in these verses? Well, in the immediately pre uh, preceding verses, Paul had explained that everyone, Jew and Gentile, is saved the same way. And so in these verses, they are Jews and Gentiles. They are all people everywhere. This then is God's simple, straightforward plan for evangelism. To quote William MacDonald again, 
he uh, says this. He says, God sends out his servants. They preach the word of faith, that is, that the believing sinner is declared righteous based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Sinners, without distinction as to ethnicity, hear God's offer of life in Christ. Some of those who hear believe the message. Those who believe call on the Lord. Those who call on him are saved. It's simple. It's straightforward. Uh, there's nothing hidden or secret about it. Now, the quote in verse 15 is from Isaiah 52, verse 7. Its original application was the announcement to the people of Judah that their captivity and exile in Babylon had ended. How much greater is the announcement to sinners of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues that their captivity to sin and death in the kingdom of Satan has ended at the cross. And so uh, Paul says, hey, Jews and Gentiles are all getting saved exactly the same way, and here's how they're doing it. God is sending out servants like myself to spread the gospel message, and those who believe are getting saved. Verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. Now, who are they in this verse? Well, certainly this is a true statement about both Jews and Gentiles. When the gospel is preached, not everyone believes. I think, however, that the they in this verse and in the following ones from this point on is to be understood as the Jews. There are at least three things that point to this being about the Jews. Number one, the overall context of this chapter was set in verse one, where Paul said his heart's desire for Israel was that the Jews be saved. Now, he went on a little bit of a tangent. He explained that Jews and Gentiles are all being saved the same way, but his focus really, the major context of this chapter and of these three chapters is God's dealings with Jews. And secondly, in verse 16, Paul quoted from the famous passage in Isaiah 53 that describes the rejection of Jesus Christ by his own people, the nation of Israel, how they would look upon him and not recognize him, and there would be nothing lovely about him, nothing to commend him to them, and they wouldn't understand that he was their savior. And then thirdly, because the general context of these remaining verses is about Israel and her rejection of the gospel, while Gentiles were in great numbers receiving it. And so uh, Paul again brings his focus to the Jews. Now we are Gentiles. A Gentile simply means a non-Jew. Some of you may have some uh, Jewish blood, some Jewish ethnicity, but uh, for the most part we're Gentiles. We are non-Jews. We don't see why it was a problem that the gospel was going out to Jew and Gentile alike and that Gentiles were being saved in great numbers while Jews were, for the most part, hardening their hearts against Jesus. I mean, this isn't something that we react to or find strange or odd, uh, especially in the 21st century. But if we were Jews... And we had the whole weight of history and scripture that indicated salvation was to the Jew first and that we were supposed to take that message to the Gentiles, we'd be severely troubled and in need of a biblical explanation. Uh, and, and so that's really what's happening. Uh, we, we don't always want to, you know, get too um, restricted into a context 
as if the Bible couldn't really speak to us. It always speaks to us. It always has application. But we, some passages like Romans 9, 10, and 11, we, we really do have to read in terms of their original intent, their original audience. And we have to kind of, you can't really put yourself in the position of a Jew, a first century Jew, uh, you know, in bondage really, in captivity to Rome and all of that. Uh, but you, you need to get a feel for why Paul is saying these things before we just launch into applying them to ourselves. And so he's explaining to his countrymen who at the beginning of this chapter he said, you know, I wish they would get saved. He had said something to the effect that I would give up my salvation so that Israel could be saved. And so this is a, a significant problem for the Jews that he's dealing with. How is it that God suddenly seemed to be turning his back on Israel and sending the gospel out to Gentiles? Well, verse 17, this actually continues his thought from verse 16 when he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, this is similar to the saying of Jesus when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Auditory hearing is, of course, necessary, but it is a hearing in the heart that makes the difference. For the most part, Jews did not have ears to hear, and certainly their leaders had stopped their ears refusing to hear. So in verse 16, Paul quoted the prophecy that Jews would not recognize their Messiah, would not believe the report about him. The report might be a reference to the facts of his ministry that he healed and performed the miracles that were prophesied of the Messiah. There's a couple of different times that Jesus indicated, he says, hey, I'm doing the things that the Messiah is going to do. Uh, in fact, when John the Baptist, you remember, was, seemed to be troubled and he was in prison and he wanted to know, are you the Christ or should we look for another? Jesus said, tell John what I've been doing. And it was a report. And so uh, the, the Jews refused to believe the report about Jesus because he didn't fit the bill as far as they were concerned. He's not the kind of savior that they wanted. An itinerant preacher from Nazareth who had nothing really to uh, commend himself. It's, it's kind of interesting, but uh, I mean, of course, we have all these 2,000 years of history behind us. And so we really, but if, if Jesus had never come in the first century and he came today, uh, most people would not really think he, there was anything to him. They think, you know, there's no flash, there's no excitement. Even though he might be doing certain things, they say, you know, you're just not the kind of guy that, that we had in mind. Uh, and, and so the Jews, they, they didn't believe the report. And so uh, if faith, we learned earlier in the chapter, comes by hearing the word of God, they weren't wanting to be saved by faith. They continued to want to be saved by the law. Especially the leadership of the nation held on to their own belief that righteousness was of the law and not of faith. So Jesus came along and he had all this fantastic teaching and was telling them different. They said, well, we don't want any, we don't believe the report. We don't want to listen to you. We're going to stop our ears. We're going to continue to think that we can get saved by the righteousness of the law. And we're going to kill you and, get, and eliminate this threat to our way of life. And so that's what Paul is talking about. And so they heard, they just didn't hear with the heart. And so I hate to be so repetitive, but the issue here was that Jews needed to be shown from their scriptures that preaching the righteousness of faith to Gentiles was indeed part of God's plan. They needed to come to the conclusion that the apostle Peter had come to, 
that Jews needed to be saved the same way Gentiles were being saved by grace through faith and not by works of the law. We talked about Peter at the council at Jerusalem last week. The Judaizers were saying, Gentiles need to get saved the way we are by becoming Jews and keeping the law. And Peter said, actually, we need to get saved the way Gentiles are getting saved by the righteousness of faith apart from the law. And, and he turned the tables, really. And so that's, that's underlying and underpinning all that Paul is talking about. So verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The Jews had definitely heard the gospel. I always marvel, really, that uh, although most Jews were rejecting Christ, all the first, century, the first Christians were Hebrew Christians. They were all Jews. Uh, as Peter preached there on the day of Pentecost, those people were all Jews. And it, it was a while before uh, they started even taking the gospel out to the Gentiles. The preaching of the gospel by the apostles filled Jerusalem and then Judea and the surrounding areas. And so Israel had heard, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't say that they hadn't heard the message of the gospel. Paul quotes from Psalm 19, which speaks of the testimony of creation. Just as ignorant Gentiles had the witness of creation all around them and were without excuse as to at least the glory of God, in a much greater way, the willfully ignorant Jew had the witness of the gospel all around him and was, ex uh, was without excuse for receiving the Lord. Uh, and so, uh, you know, nobody could really say, well, I, I didn't hear. Uh, you know, I'd, you're telling me something I didn't know. Uh, their doctrine had filled Jerusalem. Verse 19, but I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. What was it that Israel claimed to not know? Well, in the context here, they were claiming to not know, meaning to not understand, how God could save Gentiles apart from conversion to Judaism, how he could save them directly without Jewish intervention. And so Paul found a verse in Deuteronomy, it's from chapter 32, verse 21, and he quoted it to show that this saving of the Gentiles was prophesied with the hope that God's own people would become jealous. Jealousy is not always a bad thing. Uh, we normally think of jealousy as a, as a negative thing, uh, and, uh, and, nor and a lot of times it is. But if you read through the scriptures, God is sometimes described as jealous over us. And so anything that can be true of God can't be all bad. So there, there is a positive kind of jealousy. And so the scripture that Paul quotes here seemed to indicate that God's own people were going to reject him, and so he would give himself to others in the hope that they would become jealous and desire to have that relationship back again. But instead, in their jealousy, the Jews became angry rather than repentant, and so God continued to go directly to the Gentiles with his offer of salvation. Paul had had something to say about this at the end of the book of Acts. Let me just read Acts 28, beginning in verse 25. This is the last chapter of Acts. So when they, the Jews, did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of the people have grown dull, 
their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will, uh, excuse me, will hear it. Uh, and so it wasn't that they were uh, unable to respond uh, it wasn't that they couldn't respond positively. It's that they were unwilling. They willingly hardened their hearts against the gospel message uh, because they uh, preferred to think that righteousness could come by the works of the law. And quite honestly, as I indicated, Jesus was not very attractive to them. They, 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 the leadership of the nation did not, uh, for, for jealousy and for other reasons as well, but they just didn't want to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we like in a devotional sense to make a lot of Jesus's humility coming as a, as a man born in a manger, you know, in an animal's feeding trough and uh, announced to shepherds, humble beginnings, growing up in Nazareth, working as a carpenter, doing really not much of anything that anybody knows about for 30 years, then his three and a half year ministry where he didn't really have a house, he didn't have a retirement plan, no 401k, no IRA, you know, nothing like that. Uh, he, he had a, a dis band of disgruntled uh, weirdos, you know, those were his key disciples. His number one disciple from the world's point of view was Judas, who we look back on in, in the proper light. Uh, you know, he, again, he wasn't the kind of individual that, uh, you, on, on paper at least, you wanted to follow. Now, when you listen to him, he spoke like no one had ever spoken before. Children were attracted to him. He was so beautiful and wonderful in his countenance and his character. And we see his actions and his activities, and, and, and we because we're Christians, we're drawn to that, although sometimes we don't like to be treated like servants either, you know. Uh, but uh, the whole idea of Jesus was repulsive to the first century Jews. And then, of course, he was attacking their essential belief system, not what God had said, but what they had added by their own tradition. God never intended for the law to save anybody, and they had come to the conclusion that you could keep the law and become self-righteous. And Jesus said, yeah, that, that's, that's not really going to work, guys. That, that's never been the plan. And so he's talking to a guy who's just come out of, you know, uh, his morning where he was tithing from his herbs. And so he went, you know, he went to his little herb garden and he got some basil and he pulled off the leaves and every, ten, uh, you know, every, nine leaves were for him and one leaf was for the Lord. Uh, and, and I mean, these guys had all of these incredible things that they were doing, keeping the Sabbath and making sure that they weren't carrying, you know, heavy loads on the Sabbath and dietary regulations and all of these different things. And then Jesus came and he said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath and uh, you guys don't know anything really about the Sabbath and... Um, you maybe haven't ever killed anybody, but you've been angry with somebody. You maybe haven't actually committed adultery, but you've done it in your heart. And so you're just as guilty as if you've actually done it. And it wasn't, it wasn't a very exciting message to these guys who had dedicated their whole life to living by the law. And so they despised Jesus. And they said, you know, and obviously they said, hey, we're going to have to kill him. He's doing notable miracles. Uh, you and I look at that and we think, wow. But, you know, like this Gospel for Asia uh, video, we, you know, a lot of people watch that and they think, oh, how cute, you know, 
that that's not a real miracle that those kids as you know that kid he just he just got better on his own because god doesn't even do miracles today there's a lot of christians who believe that you have to guard your heart sometimes and you think you know you don't want to be gullible but sometimes you think yeah i wonder if that's really true and so, you know, we think these people are like, wow, they're seeing these miracles, and then they kill Jesus. You know, Lazarus, he, Lazarus, you need to come out of the grave, you know, and he bounces out, and they unloose him, and he's alive, and the Jews immediately get together and say, we're going to kill him. But I think a lot of people, even Christians, have unbelief in their heart today. I know a lot of Bible teachers, a lot of churches teach that there are no such thing as miracles. They'd say, whatever you just saw in that video can't really be true. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth. It's it's a misunderstanding because that passed away with the first century apostles. Uh, so it's interesting. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The next verse in Romans 10, verse 20, says uh, the same thing that Paul did in the end of the book of Acts. It says, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. You and I weren't attending synagogue probably. We weren't observing the Sabbath. I know I wasn't. Uh, we weren't kosher. God found us by sending someone to us or something someone had produced to read or watch or listen to with the gospel, and we were saved. And so that's, that's how we put ourselves in verse 20. I, Gene Pensiero, I was found by, uh, or the Lord, I was found by, he was looking for me, and, I made my, and he made himself manifest to me and and you know i wasn't really seeking the lord as a jew in in uh in the jewish religion verse 21 but to israel he says all day long i've stretched out my hands to you a disobedient and contrary people gentiles who were not seeking god were being found by him and saved jews to whom jesus had come offering eternal life and the kingdom on earth they had rejected him and so um, Paul is just really giving them their history, their recent history, and saying, look, you know, it, this shouldn't be a marvel to you that God is reaching out to Gentiles because God has been reaching out to people since the Garden of Eden. It is the nature of God to save, to offer salvation to lost men and women. And, and he came through the nation of Israel and to the nation of Israel, Jesus came to his own, but John said his own received him not. And so even without a scriptural basis, just based on the very nature and character of God, you'd expect that he would go to the Gentiles next. If Israel wasn't going to receive him and be his vehicle to reach the Gentiles, that he would go to them uh, directly or indirectly because God wants to make himself known. He has no needs. He's self-sufficient. There's nothing lacking in God, but he has desired fellowship with mankind and he makes himself known so that we can be saved. You realize how painful it is to stretch out your hands for any length of time? It's, it's difficult. God employs this word picture to describe in human terms something of the greatness and strength of his love for Israel. He says, all day I've stretched out my hands even though they were a disobedient and contrary people. Moses couldn't even hold his hands up very long up on the mountain, remember? He had to have Aaron and Hur come along and help him out. God says, all day, every day, I'm stretching out my hands to the nation of Israel to give them an idea of his love for them. His love, in his love for Israel, he strove with them right up until the Roman invasion of 70 A.D. In his love for Israel, he's saving individual Jews alongside Gentiles during this church age. 
In his love for Israel, he'll spare a remnant of the nation during the coming great tribulation. In his love for Israel at the second coming, at the end of that great tribulation, all Israel will be saved. All the remaining Jews are going to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Now, some have made the devotional application that the outstretched arms are those of Jesus on the cross, reaching out to save his own people, Israel, as well as all mankind. And I think that's uh, a valid application. Now, all throughout the Bible, God is depicted as seeking to save lost sinners. We saw this proto-evangel in Genesis. The Bible also ends with God seeking sinners in the last chapter of the Revelation where we read that the Spirit and the Bride, which is the church, say, come, inviting whosoever will believe to drink of the living water of God's salvation. And so cover to cover, God is seeking sinners. Earlier, Paul had stated that because of sin, no one seeks after God. God, however, is seeking us. His seeking sinners is accomplished by sending messengers to them with this great news, the gospel that you can have peace with God. You and I are those messengers. Wherever we find ourselves, that's where we've been sent. And we, we talk about this all the time, and you understand this. I mean, there's a classic sense of a missionary who goes somewhere, is sent away somewhere. Uh, but but that's, that's just the, uh, um, I mean, it's an important thing, and we do that all the time. Uh, but it's, it's not typical of the way God works. Uh, and, and sometimes if we don't think about this, we, we forget that we are sent every day uh, into the world. Now, we don't think about it because we're, you know, we think we decided to move to Hanford and to buy that house and to have this job and all of that. Uh, but, you know, God was guiding and leading uh, and the idea is that whenever, you know, whenever I leave the house, as it were, I'm going out into a, a mission field. It might be a, a repetitive mission field. I might see the same people every day, have the same neighbors, work with the same people. Uh, I might, it might be something completely different. But uh, I'm the one, you're the one who is being sent. We're all to do the work of the ministry. We come together as the church, the Bible says in Ephesians, so that we can be built up in our most holy faith, so that we can uh, be taught the word of God, so that we can experience fellowship with the saints, exercise certain gifts of the spirit, uh, and then go back out into what is essentially our mission field. Every believer, therefore, is a preacher, according to the earlier verse, according to verse 14. It's not a formal preaching, although it can, can, it can include preaching, it's simply the sharing of the gospel with others. It's simply telling other people about Jesus. And, and so that's, that's God's plan. It's, it couldn't be any simpler. God seeks you out. He uh, shares the gospel with you, usually through another person or through something another person has produced, a tract or a movie or, you know, a, a broadcast of some kind. You respond to the gospel positively. You give your heart to Jesus Christ. And then you start telling people about the Lord. And uh, actually the mathematics of it are pretty profound. It's like, that, it's like that example of putting pennies on a checkerboard. Do you ever hear that? You know, if you, you put one penny and then you double it each time, I mean, the, the numbers get astronomical by the time you get to the end of the checkerboard just by doubling a penny starting at the beginning. Uh, and, and so, you know, throughout my lifetime and your lifetime, 
you know, we, the people that we affect and share with, you, maybe one or two or 10 or 20 or 100 get saved over a, the course of our lifetime. And then they go out and do the same thing. And it's, it's, it's profound, really. It's profound and yet it's simple. And so we just share Jesus with others. And so here, I believe, is what our attitude always ought to be. We ought to believe that the gospel is a sincere offer of salvation to whosoever will believe. Because the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. His death was therefore sufficient to save everyone, and he becomes effective in saving those who by grace accept freely the gift of eternal life. Uh, and so really, um, just, you know, the joy of the Lord, let it bubble forth, let it breathe forth through your life, let others see it, answer their questions, engage them in conversation, just be a normal Christian, living the normal Christian life, which has to be evangelical because God is evangelistic from cover to cover. He saved you using someone else. Now he wants to use you and I so that others will hear this wonderful message. Amen? Praise the Lord.